Star Wars the film is not about what anybody thinks it's about. It's a Vietnam film shot from the point of view of the Vietnamese. It's about a small group of freedom fighters living in the jungle fighting against a global superpower with the ability to destroy the world. It's an anti-American film. Welcome to The Curious Cat, a podcast for the curious and adventurous. I am here today to talk to Dr Chris Kempshill, who I met about nine years ago at a conference he'd co-created called War Representation and Documentary, because that's just how we roll. That is how we roll. <laughs> Chris is a historian, an academic, an author and TV star. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I wanted to talk to you, Chris, is because as I've known you, I've seen the way your career has edged closer and closer to something quite unusual, something niche, where you've been able to marry your interests. Interests that might seem quite disparate. And geeky. (laughs) Very geeky. (laughs) Together, and I love that. I think that's just really interesting for people to hear about. And also I'm interested in hearing about your perspective on why history is relevant today and the importance of stories. So, if we just... Oh, one thing I was going to say is I had thought earlier, you're kind of making history sexy again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm putting that on a t-shirt. I say again, has it ever been? Well, no, I think it's it's probably the, the, not only the safe, but the the correct answer to that. (laughs) Um, So first of all, if you could just introduce yourself by telling us what, what you do and how you would define yourself. How would I? What, what do I do, and how would I define myself? Um, well, obviously, you, you've done my name, but I'm hello internet. I am uh, Chris Kempshaw. Um, doctor. Doctor. I'm, There's a doctor in there. There is a doctor in there, but I'm still not particularly used to having that. Um, what do I do? Um, I'm a historian of war. I think it's probably one way of putting it: war and society. I don't like being referred to as a military historian because it makes it sound like I'm going to turn into Tweed. Um, I mean, I'll end up in Tweed, but there's a time and a place for it, and 20 or 30 years in the future is is my Tweedy period, I think. Mainly I'm a First World War historian, um, and I did a, a PhD on relations between French and British soldiers in the First World War, um, and that's what quite a lot of my work's about, but then I, I kind of branched off into geeky places because there wasn't anyone to tell me that I should grow up and get a proper job um, so I didn't um, and I don't intend on necessarily getting a proper job I'd like a paying job um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a proper one I started writing about and talking about the representation of the first world war in computer games which I basically I, I planned just to do once at a conference so that I could say that I'd done it that I'd been geeky for 20 minutes and I talked about first world war computer games and I could like tick that off of the bucket list and then a bunch of weird stuff happened and I ended up writing a book about it and other bits and pieces that all seem very strange and there's no logical pattern to them um, and I couldn't replicate it again if I tried. So now I get to spend quite a lot of time talking about First World War computer games. But then I, I, thought, I thought I'd plateaued in like geekiness. I thought I'd, I thought I'd found my level. I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> no, well, I, 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 then other weird things happened and because of the First World War computer game stuff, somebody asked me if I had any other geeky ideas um, and I did. And now I'm writing a book about the representation of war and politics and history in the Star Wars universe, which makes me insanely happy. But it's insanely geeky, and there's no rhyme or reason to it, but at the moment, because I don't have a permanent academic job, I don't have like a head of department saying, 
for the love of God, Chris, grow up. You can't spend the next two years writing about Star Wars. Um, and because I don't have that, I want to spend the next two years writing about Star Wars. Um, because I just find it fun and geeky and I don't have anything else to do. So I want to do what I want to do um, until I can't do it anymore. Do you think that being in academia is one of those things that maybe allows you to follow your passions that might not be conventional or do you think actually your story is quite unusual even within academia? I think it's a bit of both. I like to think that the, the version of me that was before I'd finished the PhD, before I got the doctor, isn't that different from the version of me that exists afterwards. I don't think getting the doctor tag changed me a great deal. Like, you, know, I, you know, I say that like a, a national lottery winner who's sitting in a solid gold house. I know, what uh, I was say. <laughs> I mean, you want to see Chris walking down the street. Yeah, the, the <laughs> swagger and um, undeserved sense of entitlement. Um, it, I, I think it's probably made me slightly more confident and comfortable, but what I think it did is I think it's changed the reaction of other people to the strange things I want to do. Now that I've got the title, it makes it sound like, oh, well, clearly he's, he must know what he's doing. He must have some idea or some plan. There is no plan. It legitimises It legitimises me. Um, at the same time... <laughs> it's something you needed for your life. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been affirmed. Um, at the same time, I think my, my path is quite unusual um, because of the way that I ended up getting the computer game book and the way that I've ended up getting the Star Wars stuff. People have occasionally said to me, oh you did this, we should get you to tell some PhD students how to go about getting it. You don't want me to do that because I got it all by incredible good fortune and luck. There was no plan, there was no strategy. I just got incredibly lucky. Not only in the fact that I got to do this, but at the time that I got to do it. So the computer game book came out in 2015. I, um, I wrote it in 2014 and, and it came out in 2015 really, really quickly. And then it came out at a time when there were loads of First World War computer games appearing. So it was complete happenstance. But because I got to do that, I then became the person who gets to do that. Um, which is great, but it's not the type of thing that you could plan for. But I think it's the type of thing that academia allows to happen rarely to a few fortunate people to be right on the, the ahead of the curve. And even though you weren't able to plan it or strategize it, is there a way that you can look back and see the stepping stones yeah. that led to that? Yes. I, th I mean, firstly, the, the, the primary stepping stone is being geeky but not afraid to be seen as geeky. What do you mean by geeky? What do I mean by for, geeky? For someone that's been living under a rock <laughs> all their life and they've never heard the word geeky. Um, geeky's a really weird term because the stuff that I'm talking about is the stuff that I would have potentially, you know, been punched for in secondary school. It's liking stuff that isn't automatically seen as being cool. So particular types of music are seen as being cool. Particular types of sports as being, are seen as being cool, like football. Um, I liked computer games, which is fine, mm. but I liked science fiction and I liked um, science fiction novels and I liked Star Wars and I had a, a not particularly hugely formed interest in history that came later but stuff that was different enough from the norm to be noticeable and do you think there's also something about taking that interest to a slightly obsessional level yes and I mean I think it's important to acknowledge that I particularly talking about the the Star Wars book I am a huge Star Wars fan I have 
boxes of random stuff, books and prop replicas and <laughs> toys in original boxes because I have that obsessional element in me that desire to collect and what are you wearing today i'm wearing a, a t-shirt with a star wars logo on it that's in italian and uh, where did you find it i i found it in the female clothes section of uniqlo and decided that i i mean i i, I thought this anyway but clothes aren't gendered and i want it and now it's mine <laughs> i'm wearing a cardigan as well i'm not a monster so back to those stepping stones the stepping stone mm. so the first stepping stone was happy to be seen as geeky and certainly within my friends i don't think it was a massive shock amongst my <laughs> friends <laughs> oh what, what happened to your poker face vasca you were supposed to nod <laughs> earnestly um, and go no yeah we'd never we'd never really clocked on chris um as one of my friends i don't think it was a huge shock to you that i was i had geeky tendencies but i think it was the decision to go okay i'm going to go to a serious academic conference and be obviously ostensibly geeky about a thing that very few people know about. And I wanted to do that partly because I thought it was interesting to talk about, but I wanted to do that for basically my own sake. I also wanted to get a job mm. at the place that I was giving the, the paper and I thought that's not gonna hurt. So yeah, that, that was, that, I think that was probably the main stepping stone. And then the willingness to say yes to stuff without necessarily having a plan of how I was gonna do it. So people said to me, do you wanna do the book? And I went, yes, without necessarily knowing how I was gonna write it yet. And then the conference people, did an edited collection of a journal and said do you want to do a paper in this and I said yes without necessarily knowing how I was going to do it at the same time as I was writing a book when I knew that the two couldn't be about the same thing. Saying yes to something that you hadn't planned for would that normally be something that'd be quite um, terrifying uh, or I don't know I mean I, I would have a I have a tendency to try and take a period to stop and think about stuff mm. whether or not I tend toward the cautious Maybe slightly. I don't necessarily know if I tend towards the impetuous, if that makes more sense. But the kind of the sheer joy desire of, oh my God, I get to write about first world computer games and this can be a thing, meant I said yes very, very quickly. Um, I checked with a couple of other people about whether or not I'd maybe want to do it as a collaboration and then they couldn't. And actually in the end, I decided I, I just want this to be for me. Mm. If nobody else reads it, I want to be the person to write it. So yeah, that, that was probably a major part. And then similar with the other steps the, the the decision to tell uh, a history publisher who asked me if i had any geeky ideas <laughs> to say i'd like to write a book about war and politics and history in the star wars universe and for him to go that sounds really interesting let's see what we can do um would i've done that without having got the computer game book i don't know but by becoming ostensibly and publicly geeky there's a there's a security in that you it then it's expected for you to be geeky, so I can be as geeky as I want. Sometimes people will roll their eyes and go, that's fine, Chris, you're a geek, enjoy yourself, but we're not getting on board this particular pe peculiar nice. journey with you. But being a geeky war historian isn't a bad tag to have. And actually, the more that you talk to people about it, we're all geeks in Absolutely. history I mean both in history sphere, but also in society because we all got our obsessions and our our loves and our random stuff that we Absolutely. really enjoy that is not you know straight mainstream so it's not a bad place to be a to be a geek I remember this isn't gonna surprise you either a few years ago <laughs> I went to London Comic Con with a friend and walking up to the the expo center um, surrounded by people in any form of costume mm. was amazing and thinking that if I'd have told, if I'd have told this... It's getting emotional. <coughs> <coughs> He's getting wheezy. Um, 
if I die in this, remember me as I lived. We really can record your final words. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, I'll make them like um, Pancho Villa. Um, tell them I said something. Um, if I'd have, yeah, seeing all those people in costume, if I'd have told like secondary school version of me that one day I'd be walking down the street in central London, surrounded by thousands of people in science fiction costumes, he, he wouldn't have believed me. Because he thought those people are going to get beaten up. But they're not, because it's a, it's a better world. It's like, oh, my people have been freed. I think, it, I think it's also interesting that these things that have um, traditionally been seen as geeky, mm -hmm. so computer games, Star Wars, science yeah. fiction, but these things make a hell of a lot of money yes. for corporations. Yeah. They're actually highly mainstream. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Star Wars is owned by the Disney company. Right. <laughs> there is no more mainstream capitalist company on the face of the planet than the Disney Corporation. Um, there's also no more litigious company on the face of the planet, so writing the book's going to be a very careful mm. treading of the lines. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, th those things are, are hugely mainstream, but they're kind of viewed at being at the edges of it for whatever reason. It's not necessarily... It's not that they're not useful or justifiable. You only have to see how excited everybody in the world was about the first of the new Star Wars films that came out. It wasn't just geeks going to see it. But also, there's a whole generation of people our age who grew up with semi-secret geekiness who now are in their 30s with... I mean, I would assume some of them have money in houses. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know any. Um, um, but we, you know, we're not living in secondary school anymore. We have disposable incomes. We have lives. We have families. It's not... You don't have to be ashamed of it anymore because nobody's going to take my lunch money. Partly because I don't have any. But secondly, because I'm 33 years old. If you own who you are publicly... Yes. No one can touch you. No. Because what they, what's someone got on you? Oh, I'm going to embarrass you. Yeah. I'm going to make you feel shamed. They can't do that if you're if you know who you are, and you stand up and say this is me. Yeah. I mean, someone if they want to can call call me a Star Wars geek in a mocking sense, but I'm wearing a Star Wars T-shirt written in Italian. What else you got? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's not a secret. Also, I've got a dozen Lego key rings on my um, car key, all of them in Star Wars. It's, I yeah, I don't I don't care if you think it's it, it's strange. I. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me. No. Just to rewind back to what led you to being more... So it's not really risk-taking. It's showing publicly what your passions were yeah. and be, being willing to say yes to them when people are offering opportunities. Do you think there was also something in that... Because it's so hard to get work in academia... Yeah. When someone is in the process of finding work... And this could be for someone in any sector, actually... When you've got those gaps in between, do you think there is something about being a little bit more experimental or braver? Yes, I think there probably is. I mean, there are... If you look at just, like, the First World War version of me, First World War historian, there are a lot of us. A um, whole cohort of me and my friends all came through at the, doing our PhDs ran roughly at the same time. The First World War centenary is ongoing. Competition between us... I mean, it's not that we hate each other, but we are applying for the same jobs. And if somebody has a First World War history position, you know, in Highlander style, there can only be one. Until um, he passes on, it won't pass on to the next of us. So having an extra little bit of piece of something isn't a bad thing. I mean, by itself, 
the First World War computer game stuff isn't enough to get me a job. And I know that because it hasn't been enough to get me a job. And I think that's partly because history departments, regardless of university, and history as a kind of an academic field, at times in the way that it looks at new stuff, tends towards the conservative with a small c. Computer games are, again, huge money-making industries, but still not fully the academic mainstream, despite the fact that computer game studies is quite a big sphere in its own right. And... First World War computer games, I've been to various kind of conferences and that talking with people that I've known for years and I talked to them about First World War computer games and they had no idea that they existed at all, that there were such things as First World War computer games and then when you tell them that, oh yeah, this First World War computer game sold 4 million copies and, you know, they make the point that if any academic sold 4 million copies of their Mm -hmm. book we justifiably never shut up about it but they're not aware that it exists and if you're not aware that it exists or if as a collective it's not necessarily viewed as being a particularly worthwhile thing to look at the computer game bit by itself doesn't doesn't propel me over the edge what it does is it adds a very nice extra interesting element to my straight in allied relations first world war stuff and i think that the star wars stuff might do similar although that then starts to branch me out into kind of representations of war and society and history and the like um so none of them are bad things but i think to an extent they only work together. I don't necessarily know if they work individually. I don't think individually any of them is enough to differentiate me from the hundred of other candidates for all of these jobs who are all very, very good and in many cases better historians than I am. So, yeah, I think I've, I've, I'm collecting up. But again, it makes it sound like it was some kind of cunning job cunning plan and it really never was. It was just, this sounds like something fun that I would like to do. And there's no reason why I shouldn't do it. And also no one can stop me from doing it. So it was never quite, oh, this is going to be my Machiavellian 12-step plan to getting a job. If, hopefully, it will help me get a job, but... But you've got the ultimate freedom, and I wonder whether... you'll still want a regular job. Because because you feel free... Yes. To make, because there's no institution that's... Can own, tell me to grow up and yeah, get... Yeah, that owns you. no. I wonder whether you can go back. I think now that I've got these three things, because there's a weird situation with academia and these ideas. If I'd have been in a permanent lectureship and I'd gone to them before I got the Star Wars book contract and said, I want to do a book about Star Wars and history, head of department would have gone, don't be ridiculous, go away and do something properly First World War. If I hadn't mentioned anything to them and then suddenly turned up with the contract then they'd be interested because it's a contract and therefore it counts and it helps the department and stuff like that. So I wonder whether or not, now that I've collected up these slightly geeky things, whether or not, if when I get into a permanent job, if I get into a permanent job, that buys me the freedom to carry on doing what I want to do. Because Um, you'd have have established yourself as someone with a particular expertise. Yes. Um, And a particular kind of... A diva personality. Absolutely. I I require only orange Skittles delivered to my office every every morning, whether I'm in it or not. Um, (laughs) Depending on whether I'm I'm at home watching Star Wars films. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think think that that now that I'm collecting these things up, and I'm I'm actually being able to write these books, will buy me the freedom to do it again. Whether or not, if I'd have been in a job, I'd have been able to do it to begin with that I'm not so sure about. I think the freedom I have now will allow me to have a measure of the same freedom elsewhere. 
because if I can show that it works and you know people buy the book and it's a good publisher and it's an academic thing then people will find it interesting or at the very least they'll be more tolerant of me wandering off on whatever weird fantasy I'm planning for this week I won't ask any more about that <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that stands out for me and which kind of uh, flows from this is that you've kind of hit the sweet spot between pop culture and new technologies in the digital age and history and I'm wondering whether there are things we can learn in that that actually aren't just restricted only to history. Do we need to be more flexible in how we share information, learn about the world, and to tell it through new technology, but also understand how new technology is shaping us? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, there's a... I'm going to vaguely quote JFK, uh, asking not what your new technology can do for you, ask what you can do for your new technology. Um, since some of this stuff isn't fully understood yet and that's fine because there's no there's no guidebook to how to make this stuff useful either in a social means or an academic sense or a historical means but I think that new technology like anything else is worth looking at and understanding whether that's analysing its outputs like computer games or, or podcasts or Instagram Twitter anything like that the, the, the way that you can what they're used for and how they're used but also understanding them as entities by themselves and then figuring out okay how can I use this this stuff um, there's always ongoing debates about whether or not academics should use Twitter um, mm. and I was opposed to using Twitter for years because I just didn't see the point or what I was going to get out of it and being constrained to 140 characters um, when you're used to writing more is it didn't sound great but then I realised that a lot of the first before centenary stuff was going on on um, Twitter, so I joined, and again, that got me more involved with the First World War Centenary stuff. It got me to do that conference. It got the computer game stuff. It helped me build a, a profile for myself, which was great. So that's just a, like a, a single perspective on it. But that doesn't mean that understanding Twitter as a whole, the kind of the effect it has on society, um, the, the the uses and the limitations of it, aren't worth kind of looking at and understanding. I'm always puzzled when people say, oh yeah, this isn't worth looking at in regards <laughs> to anything. Because firstly, well, are you, are, you, are you just talking about yourself or is this society as a whole, is it decided now? But most things are worth looking at. It might not turn out to be a, you know, a hugely interesting thing at the end of it for everyone, but most things are worth looking at and understanding. And that's, I mean, certainly computer games has been the weird one for me and certainly all of my friends who kind of look at computer games or play them, the idea that they're somehow a less... Um, worthwhile medium than television or cinema there's always ongoing debates about whether or not computer games are art or not and I, firstly I think they are because anything can be art and I think they are because there are some games that I can think of that are absolutely art, kind of artistically and narratively beautiful but they reach into the lives of millions and millions of people is it not more concerning to say it's not worth looking at millions and millions of people welcome them into their homes do you think it's intellectual snobbery yes Absolutely, I think it's intellectual snobbery. And I think it's intellectual snobbery by a group of people who were growing up the generation before computer games came out. Um, now, I, I, probably similar to, uh, to me, when I was growing up, um, and even I still look at it now, my mobile phone is a novelty 
<laughs> to me because I remember the years and years when I didn't have one. Um, and it's then I got, still amazing. It's still amazing that I have this amazing thing in my hand and yeah. that I can make use of it and I can find out, you know, there's some yeah. knowledge of whatever. But I remember in secondary school and primary school where we didn't have them. No. Um, but there's a generation now who have always lived with them. Little digital natives. Little digital natives. So I think it's that generational divide of intellectual snobbery and also the idea the ongoing stereotype that computer gamers are people who live in their parents basement and they they're not all do they're not all of them and very few of them i mean i well i was on the ground floor of uh, <laughs> my parents house um but yeah that 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 stereotype not only has it never really been true it certainly isn't true now um there are plenty of people who have you know respectable jobs i'm not just you know talking about me um <laughs> Who, who play computer games and the like. So, yeah, I do think it's intellectual snobbery. And if people want to be snobby about stuff, then help themselves, knock themselves out. It's when they then try and limit mm. the scope of understanding for the rest of us. Yeah. If you don't want to look at computer games, don't look at computer games. It's fine. That's not a problem. I don't necessarily want to look at um, 17th century Portuguese poetry because I don't know anything about it. But if I'm sure it's fascinating to people who are interested in it and they should go ahead and do it. But for me to say, oh, I'm not interested in 17th century Portuguese poetry, therefore nobody should be, just seems ridiculous. So you're on the Academic Advisory Board for the Imperial War Museum. <laughs> I'm not reading this out, honestly. Uh, for the Imperial War Museum's Digital Centenary Project. Yes. And I was interested about that as well because of the word digital mm-hmm. in there. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that involved and, and why you think the Imperial War Museum understood the importance of that? Okay, I mean, the first thing that I should bring up in in the interests of full disclosure is I am on the Academic Advisory Board to Imperial War Museum's Digital Output. Is there an acronym for that? I, I, not one that I can think of. <laughs> the, the Imperial War Museum don't, don't do acronyms in very well. The... It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Is something of an empty title. It's a nice one to have, but I don't actively do much mm-hmm. for it. The way that I ended up getting involved in it is by a project by some other academics which was to crowdsource people going through page by page regimental war diaries from the First World War to find interesting stuff that was in there. And they needed people, uh, academic historians, to be active on the forums for it to answer people's questions and provide historical context. So I did that for a few months and then they said, you've been doing loads of this and we, we might get you to come and help us out with a thing. Why don't we just put you on the academic advisory board and I absolutely wasn't going to say no to that what the Imperial War Museum have done and partly it was also because I did some work for the BBC on similar was understand that partly this is monetary that the First World War centenary was a huge deal in regards to getting funding but also a huge deal in regards to a kind of a, a national conversation and we're not going to get a second chance at it. So if we screw it up, we've only got ourselves to blame. Therefore, we should be utilising every single tool in the box, whether that's museums themselves, TV, radio, the internet, Twitter, anything that we can do to make the First World War centenary accessible to people. Um, Because if we leave it in museums, not that many people are going to see it. And also, not that many people are going to understand it. Um, There's a huge amount of difference between simply walking around a museum and understanding what on earth you're looking at Um, because it could just be like a cavalcade of stuff and stuff is fine but it's just stuff if there's no context to it 
And is that where a historian comes in handy? That's where a historian comes in handy. It's also where a curator comes in handy because they can understand, you know, the the process, the the path they want each visitor to mm. go down. Um, curating ends up sounding like, um, you know, deciding what you know which paintings going to hang on which wall, where it's curators are guides for walking tours through museums is the way that I think of them. So they they make the the individual visitor go along the path that is going to be most interesting or most useful to them. But at the same time, you do need historians to add in the context because to an element, a tank is a tank is a tank. You could put them all in a row. That's great. You've got many tanks there, but why do I care? What is interesting about tank A? How is it different to tank B? How is tank C a better tank than the, the two that came before? It's the behind it, isn't it? Yes. We've talked about these interesting projects that have come up, and I suppose I'm interested in just having a little overview of the evolution of your ideas, of the historical yep. era that you're interested in and the themes that come up in that. Yep. So if you could just talk a little bit just a little bit <laughs> about your PhD and okay. your thesis to what First World War games, computer games, tell us today. Yeah. And then also, why is it important to write about the military history of the Star Wars universe? Okay, so my PhD was on relations between French and British soldiers in the First World War. It didn't start off being about French and British soldiers in the First World War. Uh, like all of these things, I ended up taking a, a, a detour. It was originally going to be about whether or not there was a comparable modern idea or, or myth of the First World War in Britain and France. I did loads of reading and it turned out that not only there were myths, but somebody, people have basically done all of the work that they would do towards finding that out except for the comparison. And just comparing other people's work wasn't going to do it for the PhD, so I shifted into how these people who are generally kind of working class British and far more universal but working class French soldiers interacted with each other having never met each other before. Particularly the, the, the British. Most of them would have never visited France before. Um, any French people they'd have met would have been working in restaurants in England. So they'd have, the French people would have spoken English but the British didn't speak French. How on earth any of this worked? when it's all well and good for generals to be saying okay this army do that and this division do that but it's actually the people who are stood next to each other who have to make that happen or not so how did they get on with each other how did they like each other did what did they think of each other were were they friendly did they dislike each other so the phd is essentially about that the evolution of relations between two groups of people who've got some you know very immediate things in common they're both on the same side of the war they both want to win but for different reasons but the five of you spread out they've got very little in common at all politics in france is massively different to politics in england at the time period so how did these people even interact with each other what did they talk about what did they do when they met up with each other so that was that was the phd and then america ended up coming into it um as it as it, does. As it often does um later in the phd and i'm at the moment i'm working on um um, the book of that thesis, uh, which I owe to Palgrave at the beginning of January next year, which is kind of about Britain, France, and a bigger part about America as well. So that's the kind of the historical background to it. Computer games coming out of the First World War for years and years were all about flying simulators because you just played Biggles or a version of Biggles that was kind of 
it, it was heavy on the, on the chivalry of being a, a fighter pilot and the honour of being a fighter pilot, kind of Biggles meets the Red Baron. Which is nonsense, because there was nothing chivalrous about fighting uh, as a fighter pilot in the First World War. Um, people look at the Red Baron as being this hugely honourable character and that you're not shooting at the part you're not shooting at men you're shooting at machines and if the pilot gets out then that's fine but if the machine crashes you know he took the same risk as you when you got up in the morning the red baron who was teaching his pilots at the same time taught them that the very best way to win an aerial fight was to get incredibly close to the plane you were fighting against and machine gun the pilot there's nothing honorable about it the the most vulnerable part of a plane is the gooey human bit on the inside if you shoot it with machine guns it'll crash but you ended up with this kind of mythic, chivalrous element of the First World War because it was far easier to digest and talk about than the ground war, which was far more political and far harder to talk about. And also viewed as being far more boring. No one mm -hmm. wants to play Trench Simulator 2015 because it's dull. Um, or supposedly that, that was always the idea that nobody wanted to play Trench Simulator. Is there also a thing about flights and aeroplanes, flying machines, Still being seen as like a luxurious, opulent thing. Yeah, I think I think so because humans have a I think have a an urge to fly. I absolutely do, or a kind of an interest in in flight. There's also a technological element that it's really easy to on a computer game reproduce little stick biplanes. It doesn't require a huge amount of graphic ability. It doesn't require a huge amount of um, technological advancement whereas trying to you know draw in a computer game several thousand soldiers all fighting at the same time is much much harder um, you also don't need to tell anybody what the point of a flying game is the point of a flying game is to fly and not get shot down if that means you have to shoot down some, someone else you're shooting at a machine you're not shooting at a man particularly in the early computer games because they didn't draw the men they just drew the machines so it's even more you're just shooting a machine and you're not shooting at a man so I think there was a kind of a uh, a political, a technological, and um, I'm trying to think of the, the word that I mean for it, um, uh, a coincidental nature to all of these um, games all coming at the same time, which meant it was just expedient to make them. There were a lot of strategy games as well, where the idea is, you know, you're a general and now you have to win the First World War. And those games are all about appealing to the ego and intellect of the player because the idea is well obviously as we all know in speech marks you know the first world war was fought wrong are you smart enough to fight it right okay. which i mean that as a as a statement is hugely mm. historically problematic mm. but it's in that you know are you smart enough to win the first world war as it should have been won um <laughs> the problem with it is I, it's a hugely kind of intellectual theoretical problem is that you give people a degree of power and control that no first world war general has ever had to throw thousands of virtual men to their deaths not care about their lives and end up winning because they're the last man standing which is everything that we accuse first world war generals of doing having huge amounts of power no interest in their men and simply being focused on the bottom line and i guess my brain is jumping to the the evolution of computer gaming and that, that's that detachment from what you are doing and then we move to the use of drones in the battlefield. Yes. Drones drones are flying over uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Pakistan, wherever they're being used at the moment. 
most of them, particularly the ones in the American army, are being operated by Xbox controllers. Wow. Because, firstly, Xbox controllers are perfectly designed for doing that, but because the guys who fly them are perfectly fluent in what an Xbox controller is capable of doing. So they are being operated exactly as if they were a computer game. And from a technological point of view, that makes very perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Use the best tool for, for the job. From a, a moral point of view, there are some fairly serious questions that should be asked about whether or not we are taking too many steps into turning this into virtual killing by people who are younger than we are. They're 19, 20 years old and they're playing, uh, they're playing a real-life Xbox game. And it's creepy. It's very, very creepy. So, yeah, I think there is a, a, a line about not necessarily... I mean, in a strategy game, they're not real people. You know, the guys that I send over the top in any First World War strategy game, they don't have little virtual families that they're going to go back to at the end of the war. But at the same time, I don't care because I want to win. Um, and if that means that 7,000 digital humans have to die, then 7,000 digital humans are going to die. There is a tension between the intellectual morality and the intellectual reality of playing a computer game when it's a, a strategy game. Why is it important to understand First World War computer games? The First World War does not have a particularly good cinematic library to draw on. The Second World War, and particularly Second World War computer games, are understood on moral terms and they're understood on cinematic terms. So the morality is the Nazis are the bad guys. You don't need to explain it particularly to people, although the world has moved on in recent times to make that slightly more complicated. Um, if any of you are listening to this, the Nazis are the bad guys. Um, they shouldn't, we shouldn't be needing to explain this in 2017, but, but regardless. The Nazis are the bad guys. They want to kill everyone and they want to take over the world. Therefore, to an extent, anything we do to stop them is justifiable. Again, that's a hugely complicated and not something I necessarily agree with, because we as a country and we as the Allies in the Second World War did any number of things that we really should not be very proud of um, and, and should be spoken of in the same breath as the, the, the other stuff that we did. When it comes to understanding the Second World War in popular culture, we have very particular images in our mind. So Spitfires fighting over the, the White Cliffs of Dover, people storming the beaches on D-Day, things that we can link to visual images that we've seen in cinema, Saving Private Ryan, the Battle of Britain film, um, any number of commando-esque films from the 70s and the 80s. And those images get reproduced in TV, to an extent, but they definitely get reproduced in Second World War computer games. There is no First World War cinematic library that you can draw on to the same way. So First World War computer games have had to take a slightly different approach, but last year in 2016, a huge new computer game came out called Battlefield 1. When I was trying to describe it to friends who don't follow computer games or don't care about the First World War, both of which are justifiable positions, it was the equivalent of a new Star Wars film coming out. Or, in comic terms, when you've got Marvel and DC, you've got in computer games you've got Battlefield and you've got Call of Duty. It's the equivalent of one of those comic studios releasing their flagship title as being the First World War. It will have sold millions and millions and millions of copies and it will mean that people who have never interacted with the First World War are having their first proper interaction with the First World War through a computer game, which is really interesting and it's great because people are, are developing an understanding of it. 
but at the same time they're not getting the, the unadulterated First World War, they're getting the game developer's version of the First World War. Is there a moral duty for there to be a, not necessarily a counter voice to that because that's assuming that the game itself is not telling yes. a version of a story that existed but that also is quite dangerous if it's only showing one representation. Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding and then realising that this is recorded through <laughs> sound and no one can see it. Uh, yeah, I think at the very least, it's something that has to be an awareness of. Mm. One game, one company's view of the First World War is not definitive. One company's view of anything is not definitive. And there is stuff that they've included in the game, which is great, and the stuff that they've left out of the game, which I have problems with. So this needs to be understood also this is only good if we use it as a gateway to them providing more academically rigorous understandings of the First World War. If we just leave it in the hands of Battlefield 1, then frankly, we deserve what we're going to get. Um, I've had, not kind of disagreements too strong a word, I, uh, some of my friends and colleagues take the view that TV or film or cinema or computer games should be accurate. In, again, those are the speech marks again. How that accuracy is supposed to work, I'm not entirely sure. I have a slightly softer view on it in that I think the point of film, TV, cinema, computer games is to be entertaining. If they are boring, no one will play them and the opportunity has been lost, regardless of how accurate they are. A hugely, you know, a 100% accurate First World War game would be incredibly dull because nothing's going to happen. You're going to spend weeks and months sat in a hole doing nothing with like you're wearing fully accurate uniform and eating fully accurate food but no one cares because you're not nothing's happening i'd rather that these games and these tv shows and these films didn't make stuff up just randomly because there's enough reality weird drama and tragedy and comedy and strangeness in the world of the first world war or the second world war or anything else you don't have to make it up you just have to find it and again, that's where historians should be coming in, because we know how to find this stuff, and we've already found some of it. But I think if historians leave... If we abrogate our responsibility to educate to people whose business it is to entertain, then we've got no-one to blame but ourselves when it doesn't work. So it's taking advantage of these wars yes. and conflicts being used for entertainment purposes. It's, it's, it's seeing that as a, a perfect opportunity to educate yeah to start like a, a dialogue yeah. yeah this is because all of these people who are playing battlefield one a decent majority of them will then google the first world war and then start a process where they'll over time they will go oh actually this stuff in the game wasn't like this but that's fine because they're finding it out and they're learning about it and they're they're, they're discovering it on by themselves what we as historians have to ensure is that our material to help them is discoverable which you know, means at times that having a, a fantastic journal article locked behind a paywall mm -hmm. is of no use to anybody. And, so, and that's where a digital archive that is open to all yes. is beneficial. Absolutely. Where you can go and find out information about individuals, but also how that applies to a war that is vast. I mean, you know, if someone was to ask me, do I know everything about the First World War? The, the honest answer would be, of course not. There's any number of things I know nothing about the First World War because... It, it lasted for four and a bit years and covered large parts of the world with any number of millions of different um, experiences. You can't know it all. But what you can do is you can make the stuff that we do know or that we have analysed or that we have understood 
available to people or to even flag up the fact this is contested. Mm. With your PhD in particular, you were looking at personal stories and testimonies yeah. and diary entries. Yes. And I want to ask you how important is it that we do look at individual stories and that we that we don't silence particular voices? I think, yeah, I think it's hugely important. And also the acknowledgement that, depressingly, not all voices are equal. Not all voices and experiences leave a paper trail behind either to make it discoverable. So I did look at individual diaries and letters and the like of soldiers. At the same time, there's the counterbalance to it, which was... Um, People used to ask me when I was doing the PhD, oh, are you going to interview any of the last surviving First World War soldiers? And they always used to be slightly, almost offended when I said no. And I'd say no, firstly, for methodological reasons. They're going to be remembering this 100 years after the event. That's not particularly useful for what I want. I need material that was contemporary to the time period. But also, and I mean, this, there's no way of saying this that doesn't sound slightly bad. I don't necessarily know if being the last man standing makes your experience special. Being the oldest person to survive the war is impressive, but it does not mean that your personal experience overrides the experience of the other five million people who are in the army. So it's balancing out the individual with the collective. And what that meant was reading a lot of individual things until my, my supervisor said that you'll know when you can stop when you start finding stuff that all says the same thing. And therefore you can start drawing conclusions from it. So yeah, I looked at lots and lots of individual experiences. But also, again, these were the guys whose stuff got saved. There's loads and loads of guys who didn't write diaries, who didn't write letters, the letters couldn't weren't presented, couldn't write. I mean, there are any number of the imperial armies who fought, they don't speak English and they're not literate. The, well, their stuff is gone. And, the, and the, the, you know, the, the temptation is to say, oh, they, well, they didn't produce anything. Well, that's... That, I, I, firstly, on a almost a kind of a, a pure humanitarian level I utterly refuse to believe that and I utterly refuse to accept that but on a historical level that's nonsense they were producing stuff it's just not stuff that we can get hold of anymore it, it was oral history it was song it was it was poetry it was written in a language that I don't understand written in a time that I don't understand so there are there were shortcomings in the evidence but there are also shortcomings in us as individual historians to you know I don't speak any number of the Indian dialects Therefore, the Indian experience is closed to me, except through people who do understand it and have told me. So similarly, my, my job is therefore to make understandable the experiences of men who were existing in a time that we actually, when we look at it theoretically and emotionally, we don't understand. Because how could anybody have done this? Why would you do it to yourself? Why would you do it to anybody? Why would you put yourself through this? Um, four years of appalling warfare for reasons that we don't really understand now, but clearly meant something then, because otherwise everyone would have got up and gone home. Um, I mean, the downside about that is that you read some appalling stuff, really horrible stuff. And I think I remember that time. So I remember when you were trawling through those entries. Yeah. And it did become emotionally very heavy on you. Yeah, it did. In the early part of my PhD, I decided that the smart thing for me to do would be to spend every day in the Imperial War Museum reading everything I could. Narrator's voice. It was not a smart thing to do. Um, because I ended up getting heavily emotionally involved with the guys that I was reading about and then very upset when they died. 
um, to an extent that my brain would start twisting stuff and I'd start misremembering things. Um, I, a particular soldier who, whose entries I read over a period of time, I really liked him. You know, I, I could have well imagined being friends with him. He was funny, he was honest, he was really useful in a historical sense. Um, my brain ended up remembering his diary coming to an end, handwritten diary coming to an end, a weird stain on the page, and then the next page was an A4 letter, which was the letter his mum got, telling her that he died. And I had that in my head for weeks and weeks afterwards. I couldn't shake it. And then I had to go back to the Imperial War Museum and look at some stuff. And I actually had to look back at his stuff, and I really didn't want to. And I got it out of the archive. And it's not a handwritten diary. It's a typed thing. Someone's gone through it. And ty- but my brain had decided this is how it was and had given that to me as something to process. So it was creepy. So I ended up having to stop doing that in such big chunks. And it it's, says so much about the effect stories yeah. have on us and how our brains because it's such a narrative cliche oh a handwritten diary with then a blood stain oh he got you know, in the idea that you know he got shot through the diary or something like that it's it's cinematic which yeah and which interests me because you know when we were talking about the world war games and the first world war we don't have that cinematic material and it is so fascinating that we live in an age where actually we view the world we, have, we view the world so much through... Cutscenes. Yeah, and a cinematic lens. Yeah. Because that's how we consume our popular culture in a lot of ways. And, and you know, just in our language, we say something like that, that was so cinematic. Yeah. And it's fascinating how that will have changed the way we view the world yeah. and experience things compared to people born in 1850. Yeah. All of our frames of reference come through our our popular culture the idea that if you're walking down the, the road and you're listening to music or you're humming or you're thinking a song you have your own internal soundtrack because we use cinematic terms for it which brings us neatly onto <laughs> Star Wars, oh, Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> now I realise we could probably talk for, <laughs> sorry you could probably talk for quite a long time about this and obviously yeah. we don't have the time for that and also we want people to buy the book when it's published yes but you might want to start saving now. <laughs> yeah, 60 quid, is it? Oh, I've no idea. <laughs> I, th- apparently there's going to be an affordable paperback version. I really version. hope so. I really hope so. Firstly, because there should be. But secondly, geeks will buy it, I believe. I'm a geek and I would buy it if I saw a book like that from, for 20 or 30 pounds. And I'm saying I have bought books about Star Wars. Well, I would admit I'm not a Star Wars fan. I didn't watch Star Wars well, that's the end of until... This interview. I know, until I... I was babysitting like when I was 18 or 19 and I was bored and I noticed there was a Star Wars video, I don't think it was DVD, <laughs> um, in this lady's house and I, I knew that it was kind of a shameful, shameful thing for me not to have watched the films and maybe I was tired but it didn't grab me. That's fine. And I want, but I want to you go back heavily. to it. I want to go back to it. I did judge. I want to go back to it. But... I have to say, I suppose because I have an interest in conflict and war myself, yeah. I would be really interested in reading your book because I find it fascinating that there might be things that we can learn from the way that conflict and military structures, strategies yeah. are presented in a fictionalised film. Yeah. What can they teach us about our world today? Yes. I mean, the first, the first thing to begin with, 
is that Star Wars, the film, the original film, is not about what anybody thinks it's about. We associate Star Wars... Firstly, I mean, it's, it's pure distilled, almost by the book storytelling. There's an old wizard, a young man and a princess and a, a scoundrel come good and all that type of stuff, which is one of the reasons why it, it's it very... It works, because everybody understands the, the narrative rules of Star Wars. The original Star Wars trilogy we associate with the Cold War, which is fine. Um, and it then became self-fulfilling because Ronald Reagan referred to Russia as the evil empire. Um, he designed um, uh, a missile defence programme, which didn't work, but actually won the Cold War, and that's a story for another day, called the Star Wars Missile Defence Programme. So it becomes self-fulfilling. So again, it's life-imitating art. Yes. But Star Wars, the original film, and in fact that original trilogy, is a Vietnam film shot from the point of view of the Vietnamese. Um, it's about a small group of freedom fighters living in the jungle, fighting against a global superpower with the ability to destroy the world. It's an anti-American film. Because George Lucas is hugely political. For all of his other things that you could say about him, George Lucas is hugely political. So that's the original Star Wars trilogy, and we, associate it, we can associate it with the Cold War, and we can associate it with the Vietnam War. The thing is, the Cold War and the Vietnam War end, and Star Wars doesn't. And it has to stay current. I mean, there's a huge period. The Return of the Jedi comes out in 1983, because I know that that was the year that I was born. Blessed year. Blessed year. Um, <laughs> Karma Chameleon was number one. Um, oh, <laughs> that's a little insight into British culture. Um, Star Wars reappears right at the beginning of the 1990s in book form. Uh, what eventually becomes known as the expanded universe of books that come out, novels that tell the continuing story of the Star Wars world and drum up enough excitement and enthusiasm to make it feasible for George Lucas to come back and do the, the other films. But the Cold War is ended now, so how do you rationalise... Or has it? Or has it? Question mark. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, it, the world isn't, isn't the place that we thought it was supposed to be. I'm not even living on the moon. Um, where's my hoverboard? Um... So what I find interesting is how Star Wars as an entity has to continually reinvent the reference points of its war and its history and its politics to reflect the world that will be understood by the people reading it at the time. And to justify its existence, maybe? And to potentially justify its existence. So what I'm going to argue in parts of the book are that immediate 1990s period is heavily consumed with latent ongoing fears about the fall of the Soviet Union. You definitely see it in Hollywood films and like, you know, the ideas that, you know, Russian ultra-nationalists or latent communists or, or fractured ex-Soviet states will somehow bring us to the brink of nuclear destruction. Um, the books that appear in that time are all about a defeated galactic empire, but it's still around, it's still causing problems, it hasn't gone away. And how do, how do we kill it off? How do we make it not a threat anymore? I think the biggest turning point then becomes the War on Terror. Because again, the, the prequel trilogies, when they start coming out um, from 1999 to 2005, because George Lucas is heavily political, are all about the hijacking of democracy for authoritarian means. They're about George W. Bush in the post-2001 period, because the guy who becomes the emperor, spoilers, um, for, a, for a film series that's been out for decades. Damn you. Damn it. Um, is a charismatic politician who gathers power around himself, institutes a war to gather more power around himself, and then uses it to destroy democracy and declare ultimate empire. 
So that is a clear parallel that George Lucas very slyly and flirts with saying out loud, but allows other people to say it for him. That's the films. Just after the films start coming out, those films start coming out, the Star Wars universe decides to start a new plot in its books. And some of this is just coincidental timing. It's a plot about a group of aliens who arrive from outside the galaxy who are religious fanatics who carve themselves up for religious means, who perpetrate religious killings out of religious fanaticism and praise God when they do it. One of the major books in that series comes out on like September the 12th, 2001, which is about this alien group seizing control of the galactic capital by crashing spaceships into the shields, killing thousands of innocent people and ransacking the planet. Now, their rationale for it was that these are Aztec. There's no way, reading it at the time, you can think it's anything other than a comment on Islamic fundamentalism. Whether they wanted it to be or not, that's how that's, that's, how, what, it'll be read that's now. how it's going to be read now, and it's how it, it's going to be read at the time, post-September the 11th. Um, so then you've got a situation where Star Wars was trying to do something, maybe slightly ahead of the curve. They might have been making a comment about Islamic fundamentalism before it became widespread in a September the 11th manner. Or it might have just been bad timing, and now they're in the middle of it. So what do they do? How do they now streamline this plot when the world has changed around it? So that's the type of thing that I find very interesting about Star Wars. And it's not just the books, it's how it plays and plays out in, in comics and in, and in films. And the new stuff has taken what used to be the Empire, because they've had to reset all of the timeline, because Disney wanted to be able to make new stuff, and changed it into a neo-Nazi world. The, it's, it's the Empire as seen through a Nazi-esque lens. Some of the plot of the new film that recently came out, The Force Awakens, is essentially what would have happened if at the end of the Second World War the Nazis had escaped to Argentina, hidden out for 30 years and then come back. What would they have been like? So again, the world has slightly moved on from it and, and, the, and the stories that they want to tell. I think they've become slightly more overtly political. George Lucas was always fairly... I can't say George Lucas was subtle about it. George Lucas hasn't been subtle in his entire life. But he was always more flirtatious about it. But... Star Wars is the most dominant, understandable cultural reference point in the Western world. Even yourself, you know, you've never seen... I mean, you've, you've seen a Star Wars film. <laughs> the first one. The first one. But you know that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Yes. And I imagine, to an extent, you've always known that. I want to say yes, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think I only really like late teens <laughs> oh I love you Vasco um, see I am utterly gutted because I don't remember when I found out I never got my I never got my shock Empire Strikes Back moment of oh my god of that what we now see as a really kind of a, as a narrative trope yeah was utterly shocking when it came out because it had never conceived well, to people no. that that could that you could make that type of narrative twist it's like the sixth sense it is like the sixth sense. Whereas now we see it's really cliche. But at the time it was kind of fairly mind blowing. You don't get that type of of reference point. I mean similar to um I'm assuming you've seen the film Psycho as well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to think I was thinking of American Psycho. Oh, which God. I haven't. No. 
But again, I knew that Norman Bates... Yeah. But I, I knew that before I'd seen the film, and I don't understand how that, how that could have happened. Well, it's, it's this thing of how we almost... They're these cultural legacies yeah. that, we, that we just soak up somehow. Yeah. Most of it's through The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> For me, yeah. certainly. And, and that's again why cinema is probably, probably our most dominant art yes. form. That's why it's so fascinating and why it's so important, which is why your book is <laughs> so relevant. Yeah. And, and important. I'll let you say it's important rather than me say it's Should important. Just say it again. Yeah, go for it. It's why it's so important. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to work my forward? Yeah. I guess it's a little bit like the line, the witch in the wardrobe. You step through a wardrobe into another world. Yep. And that's what doing analysis on things that are quite important yes. to us culturally, analysing their importance of them and what they say about our world today or what they say about the way we yes. like to imagine our world was like. Yes. That's why it's so fascinating because you're stepping through this new world and it also gives you a new perspective. Yeah, because none of this is passive. We might want to think it's passive, but you are participating, whether you acknowledge it or not, or whether you like it or not, in, in watching a film and taking on its viewpoints. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you watch um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're going to go out and start butchering people. It doesn't work like that. But you begin to understand the rules of the genre and the rules of the convention, and you understand how that narrative works, and it informs the way that you think. What any form of media does, particularly when you're talking about wars and conflict, but to be honest, to an extent, anything, is create a window into a way that a particular time and place is supposed to be thought about yeah. whether or not that ever existed mm -hmm. uh, and we've got a friend called Stella who does some amazing work on the 1950s in Britain and talks about the fact that the, the 1950s we think about in Britain never existed it's not <laughs> true and it has kind of come into being in the 1990s and and afterwards because that's how cultural and, imagination yeah. works and it always tells us more about the people at the time of looking yes. back than it does of who we're looking back on absolutely so part of my my, my work in in computer games and in in star wars is to be able to understand those worlds at that particular time what are we supposed to to take from it because i know i mean as a historian i often get come across the like the idea that we're supposed to learn lessons from history well first are we what lessons are we supposed to learn from from history? There's, supposed, there's definitely stuff that we're supposed to take on board, um, but always that's through an edited narrative mm. of Nazis are the bad guys, whatever we do to mm. stop them is therefore justifiable. Um, but that's not necessarily a good lesson to learn, or parts of that aren't a good lesson to learn. That certainly that anything you do is justifiable isn't a great lesson to learn. So about how those kind of dominant understandings come about. It's one of the reasons why I get slightly narky when people besmirch media studies degrees. Yeah. Firstly, because the media is the most powerful mm -hmm. thing that we interact with in our daily. Yeah. Why on earth would we not want to understand how it works? Also, media studies is the English literature mm -hmm. of culture. Absolutely. It's understanding how the convention works, how the narrative works, but also how the apparatus of it works. And, and thirdly, the idea that media studies people don't go on to produce anything worthwhile, do one. The media is hugely powerful. Why on earth would we not want to look at it and, and then I end up being suspicious of the people who say that we shouldn't go really what are you trying to hide 
why we, why would it be convenient for me not to pay any attention to how the media works and how it informs society's thinking? Because now it just sounds sinister when you tell me that I shouldn't look at it. You're like the creepy janitor in a horror film telling me not to go into the basement. Why? What's in there? I don't know. <laughs> Star Wars stuff. <laughs> and a guy playing computer games. So as we draw this conversation to a close... <laughs> it's been a meandering one, hasn't it? What lessons have you learned, Chris? Um, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I should be rethinking my entire life choices today or if I should just stay the course, Chris. You're doing fine. I think you definitely don't need to rethink the way your life is panning out <laughs> because I think it shows that actually if you fully embrace what you're passionate about and you're willing to say yes to things that you're, you might not be quite ready for, then actually it can open up a whole world of new possibilities. Yeah. And and it doesn't mean that it will be easy. No. At all. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get loads of opportunities come knocking at your door. No. But it's definitely an interesting way of living one's life. Yes. I don't know if I go so far as the, the cliche, fortune favours the brave, but sometimes being strategically brave or geekily excitedly brave it's probably a better one because as I said earlier there is no grand strategy or no grand plan being excitedly geekily brave can have it firstly benefits just to itself but it can help so internet if you're if you're listening to this and thinking you know what I want to do first world war and I want to do first world war computer games and I want to do star wars games Please don't, because I can't really <laughs> cope with the competition. Um, this is my niche. I'm, I'm not really interested in sharing it with, with other people. But find your own niche and, and, then, and then brick it up um, to prevent other people from getting in there with you. That's not a great lesson. Well, it's the one that you've recorded. The one, <laughs> one that will be remembered by everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. It's been lovely. It's been an honour. Thank you for asking me. Very best of luck with the edit. <laughs> Thank you. Wow.